This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. I'm going to try to simplify this, which is very difficult for experts, because experts live in a world of great insight and detail and everything else. But I'm just going to give you the the bumper sticker version, it seems to me. Um, One way of reading what's in the treaty is that uh, signatories should ensure that copyright holders uh, receive payment for the use of their works and that you can't get around it by uh, various forms of piracy. The other way which you're putting to us is that the treaty required Canada to put in place a dual tariff mechanism because there were two stages, each of which had to be compensated. And I must say, I find it a great strain to, to, to take from the words uh, of, the, of the legislation in the context of the treaty that this, this dual compensation regime was mandated and then Parliament took that on board and said, yes, we are going to fulfill our international treaty commitments by doing this, as opposed to saying, we're going to make sure that there is a regime in place which... Uh, which there are no holes, there are no gaps, that every copyright holder will receive compensation versus two levels of compensation. That was Supreme Court Justice Malcolm Rowe in January of this year during oral argument in SOCAN versus Entertainment Software Association, the latest copyright case from Canada's highest court. The court issued its ruling earlier this month affirming yet again that technological neutrality is a foundational element of the law and notably emphasizing the need for balance and recognition that, and I quote, copyright law does not exist solely for the benefit of authors. My colleague Jeremy De Beer was an active participant in the case, writing an expert opinion during the copyright board phase that provided an answer to Justice Rowe's question and which reflects the approach that the court ultimately adopted. He joins this week's podcast to discuss the evolution of music distribution online, this latest case in the court's commitment to copyright balance, as well as what might come next in the seemingly never-ending battle over Canadian copyright law. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. Okay, it's great to have you back. So we're talking music, we're talking copyright and international copyright with WIPO today, starting with SOCAN, the Society of Composers, Authors and Music Publishers of Canada, which, as our listeners may know, is a Canadian performance rights organization uh, that's been well known and well known in part because it's been a regular litigant at the Supreme Court of Canada. We go back to 2004 with the SOCAN versus CAPE case, and then a pair of cases involving the Entertainment Software Association. One in 2002, one came out in 2012, and another just last week. Now, I'd like to obviously drill down into last week's case, which involves the making available right and a, a reaffirmation of the commitment to technological neutrality and the copyright balance. But you know, before we get into the legal specifics, it's striking how SOCAN at the court and as well as I suppose at the Copyright Board traces a longstanding effort to expand payments for music distribution online. So can you get the discussion started with a bit of insights into sort of that issue, the the evolution of the industry of online 
music distribution models and how all that fits in with some of the royalty structures. Yeah, I can, Michael. The Making Available case has been more than 25 years in the making. And we can trace this back to 1996. Uh, two things notable happened then. The World Intellectual Property Organization uh, members signed the WIPO Internet Treaties, one governing copyright belonging to authors, songwriters, and another governing copyrights belonging to uh, performers and record producers. And uh, these two treaties collectively are known as the WIPO Internet Treaties. One of the things these treaties did was establish that these rights holders have the right to make their works available on demand and in an online format. And that's where the making available right traces its roots to. The other thing that happened about the same time was that SOCAN proposed Tariff 22 to collect royalties for music on the internet. And those two developments, the SOCAN's proposed Tariff 22 for um, royalties for music on the internet and the WIPO internet treaties have continued to unfold over the last 25 years, culminating in the Supreme Court of Canada's most recent decision in ESA v. SOCAN, the Entertainment Software Association. Can you talk, before we get into that, that particular case and even how the making available right finds its way into Canadian law, a little bit of how SOCAN has envisioned some of those payments. So there, there was no uh, streaming music back 25, 26 years ago. How did they envision being paid for music online? SOCAN began with a vision of collecting royalties at sort of convenient intermediate points on the internet. So the original proposal suggested that royalties would be collected from internet service providers and internet service providers would then pass those costs on to their subscribers, including people who upload content hosted to websites, typically uh, as a service offered by the internet service providers and the customers who pay subscription fees. That case went to the Supreme Court of Canada and in 2004, the Supreme Court decided that neutral intermediaries, that is intermediaries that don't interfere with the content that they're delivering are not liable for communicating uh, content to the public. So they don't have to pay royalties. SOCAN went back to the drawing board and reimagined how it would collect royalties for online uh, dissemination of music. And turns out that between uh, the mid to late 1990s and the mid 2000s, when the Supreme Court issued its decision, the internet had fundamentally changed. Uh, there were still peer to peer file sharing services, but most people were not getting their music from Napster anymore because uh, litigation had succeeded in shutting those platforms down and there was mass litigation against users of those platforms. What had evolved and emerged at this time were uh, retail outlets for online music, the most prominent of which was the Apple iTunes Music Store. And for those early users of Apple's iTunes Music Store, you might remember that the primary commodity they sold were downloads. You pay 99 cents, you get to download a copy of the song. Uh, 
And you could keep that download on your computer or on your iPod. Um, if you could get around the digital rights management, you might be able to burn it to a CD. But uh, the market was a market for downloads. And so, so, so can they, ref they represent um, a particular kind of right. They represent um, authors and music publishers' performance rights, which typically have been, uh, royalties have been collected for performing rights for public performances, theatrical performances, um, even street performances like busking or performances in parades or at dance halls, um, or performances using telecommunications technologies like the radio or television. And so SoCan had made the argument that when a consumer downloads something from the iTunes music store, they are in a essence receiving a communication. They're that, that's a performance that takes place. And the Supreme Court of Canada in the first ESA in SoCan in 2012 rejected that view of the Copyright Act. And uh, the Supreme Court said that, that an activity like downloading music from the internet can really only implicate one of the core rights of copyright. Um, either what you're getting is a durable copy of the work, which is equivalent to what you'd get when you bought a vinyl record or an eight track or an audio cassette or a CD. Um, or you're listening to a, an ephemeral performance, like when you listen to the radio or, or watch television. But you don't have to pay royalties for both because what you're getting is really one thing or the other. The same year, in 2012, the Canadian Parliament amended copyright. Copyright law was, was changed in significant ways, one of which was to implement these international treaties. And so Canada clarified the legislation to say that a communication to the public what you get when you listen to the radio or watch television, what you're receiving, what you're listening to, includes the making available of the content so that the communication happens not when you hear it, but once it's made available for you to, to hear. And this most recent case involves SoCan arguing that that created uh, a new an additionally compensable right. In essence, the argument was that this legislation overruled the Supreme Court's decision in 2012. And the Copyright Board agreed with that. The Copyright Board said that indeed the addition of this phrase making available to the Copyright Act does create a new right to be paid. Uh, whether the consumer is ultimately getting a durable download or listening to an ephemeral stream, the making available for downloading or for streaming. Can you explain just a bit more about how that how making available plays out at the international level, let's say within the WIPO Internet treaties, and then how Canada went specifically to put it into Canadian copyright law? Yeah, I think um, a lot of people, I want to say everyone, but certainly a lot of people think that rights holders should have the ability to control the way in which their works are made available to the public and that whether it's made available on a peer-to-peer -peer file sharing website or made available for downloads or made available for streaming, that that's something that the rights holder ought to be able to control in general terms and that the rights holder should get paid when their work is made available. Um, 
what the WIPO internet treaties do is essentially clarify that in international law and they require all members of the world uh, the world intellectual property organization all signatories to these treaties to ensure that their domestic law gives authors and publishers the right to make available their works so that there's not a on-demand uh, loophole people can't come in and say well you know i made the work available but there's no proof anybody ever downloaded it so i'm not liable for that and and this making available right uh, closes that loophole it means you can't argue that you're not liable for making it available on the basis that maybe no one listened how does canada address uh, the issue to ensure that it's it's compliant with the with the white Point internet treaties you mentioned that this this takes place in 2012 that was for those that don't recall part of a very large uh, effort to reform copyright that included other elements of that treaty, the anti-circumvention rules from the white board internet treaties, an expansion of fair dealing, changes to statutory damages. There was a lot there. What specifically did we do around making available? Yeah, Canada implements the um, making available right or the obligation to remunerate rights holders for making available with a combination of other rights that already existed in Canadian law. And you know, I've been arguing for a decade that this is the the right approach, the way that Canada uh, could have, and in fact did implement implement uh, the making available right. And the Supreme Court of Canada uh, follows this approach, and they said essentially, you look at the existing rights. There's a right to reproduce, there's a right to perform, and there's a right to authorize reproductions and performances. And so, depending on the nature of the technical activity, whether it's a stream or a download, some version of the right to authorize, the right to perform, or the right to reduce, reproduce will be triggered when the work is made available. Um, but, but what the Supreme Court said is you don't get paid twice or three times. You don't get paid when the work is made available and then again when the work is eventually downloaded or again when the work is eventually streamed. Essentially what, what the Supreme Court said is the payment kind of moves up in the process. The, the, the payment is triggered or the right to payment is triggered when the work is made available. I always think of the old philosophical expression, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it, does it make a sound? This is sort of the same. If a work is made available and nobody downloads it, is there still a royalty? And the Supreme Court said, yes, there is, but only one. Okay. So court says just a single royalty. We'll come, we'll come to the court just in a moment. But before we do that, um, the way that this got to the Supreme Court in, or arrives at the Supreme Court in the first place was, of course, that SOCAN takes a look at what takes place in 2012. And they, of course, don't ultimately agree with what, Supreme, what you just articulated the Supreme Court has to say. They go to the Copyright Board. Um, can you tell, tell me a bit, what, do, what are they looking for from the Copyright Board? And I know that you get involved in the case at this point in time. Um, perhaps it's, it's worth explaining how, how you get involved in this particular case uh, once SOCAN goes to the board. Yeah, full, full disclosure, um, I was uh, an expert witness in the case, and um, I prepared a report on behalf of objectors to the tariff arguing that the way in which Canada fulfilled its treaty obligations was through this um, this array of, of different rights and that that it wasn't legally necessary under international law and Canada didn't in fact do this, it wasn't necessary to create a brand new separately uh, compensable right. Um, what, what made the case I think difficult for the Copyright Board and everybody involved at that stage 
was the the nuance and complexity in this area of law and so there are a couple of different plausible interpretations of the legislation the way in which different parts of the legislation interact with other sections is is complicated and arguments can be made reasonable arguments can be made um, about how to interpret these provisions and the board's uh, interpretation was that this creates a separately compensable right that what was happening was a new making available right that created an additional um, opportunity for compensation for for authors and music publishers um, and for other rights holders as well um, and that uh, that that was the way in which Canada had to uh, reform the law in order to comply with these with these international treaties uh, that's ultimately not the uh, the correct approach according to the majority of the Supreme Court and uh, two judges in the Supreme Court actually went so far as to say that was a completely unreasonable approach, um, being even more critical of the board. Um, the Federal Court of Appeal had said uh, that the board engaged in result-oriented reasoning. was It was exceptionally critical. Um, but what, what really made this arguable in the first place was, was the complexity of the legislation. And I don't know how interested your listeners are in going into all that detail, but Suffice it to say, it was complex enough that that there were some there were some legitimate questions about what the proper way to interpret this was. So, a complicated piece of legislation. You've already highlighted the the view that Sokan would say, "Well, listen, there are, this this now creates two sets of rights. On the one hand, the this new making available right, someone makes the work available, plus the the old right, the the right that we're accustomed to having, uh, where someone, let's say, downloads or streams or makes you know actually accesses that performance." Uh, the 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 argument on the other side, one that you provided uh, support for as an expert witness, was that no, this is all one single right that is being triggered, and so that there's a single single royalty that that would be payable. And you've mentioned the the board sides with two. Um, it goes to the federal court of appeal. You've, you've highlighted a bit at the federal court of appeal and then Supreme Court, both overruling. I take it uh, what the board had to say. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think the other interesting dimension that um, a lot of people might not appreciate is how specialized or hyper-specialized the board is when it comes to dealing with these kinds of cases. Um, the board's the board's been widely criticized in, in recent years, uh, some of it fairly, much of it unfairly. Um, you may know I've been one of the people to, to defend the board um, in general terms. This issue is incredibly complicated, and I think what 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 may have happened here as an as an observer is because the issue was so uh, complicated and so technical, the people at the board involved in um, making these decisions and interpreting and advising on the legislation um, were so deeply familiar with the process of law reform that they may have not open their minds fully to alternative interpretations of what the legislation could have meant or different ways to comply with the treaties. Um, so, you know, we, we, it's not a, a wide circle of experts who work in copyright law in Canada or worldwide, frankly, for that matter. And so a lot of the same people that were involved with, um, with Canada's implementation of the WIPO Internet treaties also played a role as... Um, at the board, either in you know in advising on a decision or or in, in making arguments for for one or the other party at the board, 
And so um, I think that's sort of what happens when you get this hyper-specialized topic, there's a tendency to develop a kind of one-track view about what the legislation you know, means or, or must mean. And then when it goes up to the Federal Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court of Canada, you have more um, generalist judges which are coming at this with fresh eyes, looking at this for the first time and taking a look at these issues through a broader lens rather than focusing on maybe hyper-technical uh, um, issues and, and embedded assumptions, looking at this within the parameters of copyright law and policy more generally and the broader principles of balance and the way in which the Supreme Court over the last 20 years has been clear the Copyright Act needs to be approached. When you take a look at the case fresh through those eyes, I think you see you see another path. You see another interpretation of the legislation, which is, I think, quite honestly, a little bit more pragmatic um, as well. That you can't be double dipping royalties for what's essentially the same activity. That you know, when a work is made available, you get paid for the making available, um, but you don't get paid again for. For the stream or the download, it's sort of a common sense point of view that um, that I think the federal court of appeal and Supreme Court judges were really well positioned to to embrace. Yeah, I know that's an interesting observation. You know, I've often thought that there have been a number of these copyright cases. Certainly, the the one involving um, both song previews and then later uh, the one involving ESA and SOCAN around the inclusion of music on on video games, where if you were to speak to someone who was not so deep in the weeds, uh, they would have a hard time believing that this was a case that would go all the way to the Supreme Court. You just mentioned the, that when they do take that broader perspective, they bring to bear some of the broader goals and policy purposes behind copyright law. And I think that some of the, the commentary that we get out of this case is really notable in that regard. Uh, why don't we talk specifically right now, or first off, around the issue of technological neutrality? Because of the court... Um, really spend some time talking about that. What is technological neutrality and what has the court here in this case uh, provided, it seems like a pretty strong affirmation of? Well, technical, technological neutrality is the principle that the same balance that applies in an offline world ought to apply in an online world. Um, so that you can't either add to or subtract from the rights of authors or the rights of users simply because the technology uh, that's at issue is changing from the analog to the digital. Uh, Professor Karis Craig at Osgoode Hall Law School in Toronto is uh, Canada's leading light on, on this topic, and it was great to see her work cited by the Supreme Court um, and, and endorsed by the Supreme Court. So she's, she's been really great uh, thinking about these issues. It, essentially, the court says that you can't get paid twice online if you wouldn't have got paid twice offline. The earlier way in which it was explained in the 2012 case was that the internet is essentially a, quote, technological taxi, end quote, delivering durable copies of downloads to end users. No different from the way Amazon would deliver you a CD or you'd run out to Walmart to buy the CD yourself. And so the royalty structure shouldn't be any different in the online world than they are in the offline world. And um, this decision, the 2022 decision, just took that a step further by, by reinforcing that idea that if there were two royalty payments um, required here, 
that it would create an, an inequality, a lack of neutrality between the offline and the online world. So strong affirmation on the issue of technological neutrality. So too on the issue of balance and copyright, you know, one of the most striking sentences that comes from the main part of the decision um, is that copyright law does not exist solely for the benefit of authors, which strikes me as yet another confirmation of the court's emphasis on copyright balance and users' rights. It certainly feels like there's no turning back at this stage when it comes to Canadian copyright. Um, you, you, you share that view? Absolutely. I share that view. Um, I would go even further, though, and what we're seeing is a recognition that this balance principle permeates all aspects of the act. In the earlier cases where balance came up, balance was used as a principle to, in a way, counterbalance author's rights with user's rights. So if an author had copyright, a user had fair dealing rights and you would weigh the copyright against the fair dealing rights. And we've seen that uh, most recently enforced by the Supreme Court in the York uh, University and Access Copyright case, that that's the way to approach it. But in recent decisions, we've seen balance used to interpret all of the provisions of the Copyright Act. And so the way in which balance was used here was not as a principle to counterbalance or offset author's rights, but as an interpretive principle to guide the way in which we look at, at copyright inherently. So the, the rights under the statute are established by Section 3. And in determining the scope of what those Section 3 rights are, the court said you have to apply the principle of balance. And so it wasn't like, you know, there were commensurable things on two sides of the scale. It was really a, an integral principle of statutory interpretation. And I think that's really significant. That's, that's the significant um, confirmation in this particular case. It's just the universal applicability of that balance principle. Okay. Now, yeah, I think it's a great point. You know, it, it brings me to, to where I guess I wanted to, to end with this, again, looking at the, at the bigger picture. And it, it, it seems to me that you know, we've seen a lot of copyright cases at the Supreme Court of Canada over the last 20 years. It highlights how copyrights become more and more important. The courts also, I think, become pretty engaged on these issues. And the cases notably often involve the same parties. We've been talking about SOCAN's cases. You just alluded to access copyright uh, and the publishers that have been involved in several cases. And it seems to me that after some of these, those early cases you know, they've consistently tried to, in a sense, question that foundation, whether it's balance or user rights or technological neutrality. Um, I feel as if there's an element of the various stages of grief here with denial, anger, bargaining, depression and acceptance. You know, I, I suppose I want to ask, having lost again and again, I mean, the court's been, even though the judges have changed at the court to a pretty significant degree, the court's been really consistent in its approach with respect to copyright. You know, so having lost again and again, do you think we're anywhere closer to acceptance? Are, are we closer to a stage where relitigating basically the same question as we've seen for almost now 20 years um, will give way to either fewer cases or perhaps asking the court other questions rather than, you know, did you really mean what you said in that prior case? You know what, Michael? I, I don't think so. I think we're going to see these cases continue to arise and these same arguments made again and again and again. And I think there's two reasons for that. One, some of these issues are really existential issues for the parties that are litigating them. And they represent massive threats 
I think to to the established business models for some collecting societies and to the revenue streams for other collecting societies. It's it's well known um, that there are challenges in adapting to technological realities and that the business models remain in, in flux. And there are challenges in ensuring that uh, rights holders are able to collect uh, what they deserve. So what we're seeing are arguments that are being rehashed almost out of a uh, a desperation and I don't I don't see that changing dramatically in the short term in the longer term the thing that leads me to believe or worry might be the right word that we're going to see these issues relitigated is the constant process of legislative change and what we see is when these parties lose in the court they go to parliament and they lobby for legislative changes. Sometimes they're big changes and sometimes they're little tweaks. But every time we get these little changes, suddenly it opens up an avenue for all new arguments. Even if the core underlying principles articulated by the Supreme Court haven't changed, you can make technical arguments that a new right's been created or a precedent has been tweaked or, or overturned. And we're seeing this again. I mean, copyright term has been extended. That is a whole topic worthy of you know, countless podcasts, which you've which you've done so well. But what we see coming down the pipeline is just as worrying. It may not be exactly the same in terms of new tariffs, but when we're talking about the collection of, uh, I don't know if royalties is the right word, but a link tax for online news, or when we're when we're seeing the the government drop hints that it might be overruling the Supreme Court of Canada when it comes to the balance established in the educational context and opening up more consultations. These are signals that I think um, these issues are just going to continue to percolate and, and resurface in cases for the foreseeable future. Okay, I was hoping for an optimistic uh, response, but uh, I think you've provided probably a more realistic one. You're right. Well, These issues if, have been playing have been playing out and continue to play out in the the effort if you lose at the courts to change the laws is where people ought to be focusing, I think. Well, if you if you want a more optimistic note, here's an observation. In 20 years of Supreme Court jurisprudence, the court has turned over, the entire court has turned over, and not once have we seen even a hint of dissent in all of the judgments, in all of the cases, that this is not the proper approach. So it's not like this is a faction of the court, you know, or, or a blip in a, in a couple of years or a couple of cases. This is consistently emphasized by every judge and every new judge on the Supreme Court of Canada that this is the way to go. I think we've seen judgments from some of the lower courts that haven't yet got that message, um, but they're getting they're getting corrected in language that is, I think, increasingly clear and direct that this is the approach the courts need to take. It's not just an an isolated case or an isolated judge or faction of judges. It's it's the court unanimously and consistently. You're right. That's a, that is a more optimistic way to conclude this. We'll we'll continue to see this issue evolve. 
both within the legislature, but uh, presumably also in the courts, which, as you say, have been very, very consistent in no small part, thanks to your work and the work of uh, many others who've been engaged on some of these issues, intervening in cases and uh, ensuring that the court understands the full implications of what they're considering. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure, Michael. Thanks for the opportunity. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.